We will now proceed to our second lecture on the authenticity of Scripture. Dr. Jeff Riddle will unpack Matthew 5.18 as his text. This text was used as a proof text for the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 8, and that's also found before the London Baptist Confession of Faith in the Westminster Confession of Faith, of course. It's used as a proof text for the word authentical. It's a joy to welcome Dr. Riddle back to this pulpit. He has proclaimed the word for us now for the third time at this conference. Dr. Riddle serves as pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia since 2010. He is a graduate of Wake Forest University, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Union Presbyterian Seminary. Dr. Riddle writes regularly at Stilos and has a podcast called Word Magazine, which I heartily commend to you. Dr. Riddle, please bring us God's Word. Well, let me extend to you greetings from the Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And let me extend to you my uh, thanks to the Five Souls Church and to Pastor Christian McShaffrey in particular for this gracious invitation once again to be part of this conference. I've really been looking forward to it. Before I begin uh, this lecture on this topic of the authenticity of Scripture, I would like to read aloud that proof text that Ryan made reference to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. And why don't we stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. Gospel of Matthew, 5th chapter, and in the 18th verse, the Apostle Matthew faithfully recorded these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word and let us join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we stand before thy word and as we meditate upon this verse and the implications of it, we ask that you would give us uh, illumination Uh, We can say with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things, we have this opportunity, though, to meditate upon thy word, and so allow us to receive it as such. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are gathered again under the umbrella of the theme of this conference, the Holy Scripture and the Reformation. And my topic in this session, building upon The talk that was given last night on the authority of Scripture and the devotion we've heard this morning on the inspiration of Scripture is to address this topic of the authenticity of Scripture. In hindsight, we see that the Protestant Reformation was profoundly significant in the history of Christianity. The gospel had been compromised, if not altogether forfeited in the medieval Roman church. This reminds us that Christ uh, is... Uh, keeping his church, he has founded, he has established it, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and yet we could say that 
the church, Christianity as a movement, is always just one generation away from extinction if there's not faithfulness in upholding the word. As in the days of Josiah, so at the time of the Reformation, the scriptures had been suppressed by men of ill will, with Rome in particular attempting to replace the divine originals as a chief authority for faith and practice with the Latin Vulgate and with the Roman Magisterium. It was during this time, however, that we begin to see the extraordinary working of the divine hand to shape the course of history and to maintain the scriptures for God's people. There was indeed in those times a perfect storm of circumstances in Europe that would ensure the recognition, affirmation, preservation, and dissemination of the traditional texts of the Word of God, or as Owen and others would put it, the divine original. That perfect storm of circumstances included the collapse of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, and the entrance into Western Europe of Greek-speaking refugees, many carrying Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. It would also include the rebirth of classical learning in the Renaissance with its cry, Ad Fontes, back to the sources. It would include the introduction of papermaking from China in the 12th and 13th centuries into Europe. It would include the invention of the printing press, which by the 1440s uh, was perfected by Johannes Gutenberg and others. And it would include the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And that would be accompanied by the corresponding appearance of men of unsurpassed piety, intelligence, and diligence, who were untainted by the corrosive effects of modernism, rationalism, and the Enlightenment. In a talk I did earlier this year for Trinitarian Bible Society, I noted Adam Nicholson's description of the men of that era in his book, God's Secretaries. And uh, Dane reminded us that the title of that book comes from Usher's mention of the penmen of the scriptures as God's secretaries. But uh, Nicholson has this book about the authorized version written in 2003, and he describes one of the men, one of the translators of the King James Version, a guy named Lancelot Andrews. This is what he said about that man. He said, the man was a library, the repository of 16 centuries of Christian culture. He could speak 15 modern languages and six ancient. But the heart and bulk of his existence was his sense of himself as a worm. The author then said, people like Lancelot Andrews no longer exist. And then he says, it is because people like Lancelot Andrews flourished in the first decade of the 17th century and do not now that the greatest translation of the Bible could be made then and cannot now. If that statement is true of the translators of the authorized version, it is also true of those Protestant men whose labors produce the consensus classic text of scripture from which faithful Protestant translations like the authorized version were made. One interesting question that might be posed is this, did the men of that Reformation era have any comprehension of the fact that they were living in such momentous times, 
in which the foundational truths of the faith were being reclaimed, acknowledged, and propagated under the sway of God's providential hand. We get some interesting, intriguing insights into this in Calvin's discussion of church officers in his institutes in uh, book four and chapter three in section four. He discusses the five offices mentioned in Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then Calvin offers this uh, observation. He says, of, of these five offices, the last two are ordinary offices in the church. But he says, the Lord raised up the first three, the extraordinary officers at the beginning of his kingdom. And then he says this, and now again revives them as the need of the times demand. He proceeds to say that the apostles were sent out to lead the world back from rebellion to true obedience to God. Though concluding that none of these permanent uh, offices, in the, none of these extraordinary officers were permanent offices in the church, the, 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 uh, the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. Nevertheless, in the Institutes, he adds this, still, I do not deny that the Lord sometimes at a later period raised up apostles or at least evangelists in their place as has happened in our own day. Calvin did not believe, again, that the offices of apostle, prophet, or evangelist continued in the church, but it seems plain that he believed that men like them could be raised up by God at his good pleasure to lead the world back from rebellion to true obedience to God. And indeed, he believed that this was in fact happening in his day. He believed that he was living in a special season in the history of the church. Though in humility, he never stated that he himself was one of these such apostolic-like men, he did not hesitate to call Martin Luther, in his defense of Pigium, a distinguished apostle of Christ, by whose ministry the light of the gospel has shone. Such men, like the Luthers and the Calvins and those who would follow after the Protestant Orthodox, did not write scripture, they did not write down new revelation, but they would lead the world back to scripture lead it back to its true teachings. And they would recognize and they would help preserve what authentic scripture is. John Owen certainly seemed to think that something of momentous providential importance had transpired with regard to the transmission and preservation of the scriptures with the invention of printing. He wrote, quote, let it be remembered that the vulgar copy we use was the public possession of many generations, that upon the invention of printing, it was the actual authority throughout the world. Let that then pass for the standard, which is confessedly its right and due. D.A. Thompson, a former bishop in the Free Church of England and an editor of the Bible League Quarterly from 1961 to 1970, Likewise observed, quote, until about a hundred years ago, most evangelical Protestants felt that in the Texas Receptus, they had substantially the reproductions of the autographs of the New Testament writers. 
these Protestants considered that the Reformation was the greatest blessing the Lord had sent to the visible church since Pentecost. It was a special time. This used to be a consensus. This was when that there was that perfect storm of providential circumstances. And the church was able to identify the scriptures, was able to acknowledge their authority, their inspiration, their authenticity. What did the men of the Reformation and post-Reformation eras mean when they affirmed that the scriptures which they had received were authentical? That's our topic to think about this. And we go back to Westminster Confession of Faith 1.8. And let me just read the first part of it. Chapter 1 and paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. The first scriptural proof text, as mentioned by Ryan, in the Westminster Confession of Faith for this section comes after the word authentical. And it's a reference to Matthew 5.18. So, according to the Westminster Divines, Matthew 5.18 was a scriptural key to unlock what they meant by the immediately inspired and providentially preserved scriptures being authentical. Now we'll correct one thing, Ryan. Actually, Matthew 5.18 is not quoted as a proof text in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. The first proof text that appears in chapter 1, paragraph 8 of our confession comes after the reference to the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's they add a proof text point to Romans 3.2 about the ancient Hebrews being the stewards of the scriptures and the, of the Old Testament. And I think they probably did that because in 1677, when the, that confession was composed, there was a lot of controversy, particularly about the vowel points. And it's not that they didn't believe in Matthew 5.18. You can look at their, uh, their readings and they were in, they were in line with the, the typical Presbyterian Reformed views on the meticulous preservation of the scriptures. But it's interesting that they had that little, there's that little variation that appears within it. So what did these men of old mean by authentical? Simply put, it means that they believed that the inspired, uh, immediately inspired Hebrew and Greek text that they had received was true and accurate to the original. In Garnet Howard Milne's book, Has the Bible Been Preserved? He cites another man of this era, Edward Lee, who provides this definition of authentical. Lee wrote, The question betwixt us and the papists now cometh to be considered. Which of these editions is authentical? That is, which of itself hath credit and authority being sufficient of itself to prove and commend itself without the help of any other addition because it is the first exemplar or copy of divine truth delivered by the prophets and apostles. Milne explains, 
In other words, the authentical edition is the correct copy of the author's work. So there's no mystery as to what the framers meant when they used the term authentical. It means they believed they had the copy that was faithful, that was accurate, that was what the prophets wrote, that was what the apostles wrote. They had the scriptures in their hands. As Richard Brash has put it, the men of the Reformation and the post-Reformation era believed there was a practical univocity between the faithful opographs, which, with the invention of printing, had been placed in a fixed and stable medium. They had the original autographs in the printed editions of the faithful opographs or copies that they had received. What good would it do to say you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that you believe in the authority of Scripture, if you do not correspondingly believe that God has, by his singular care and providence, kept that word pure in all ages. Amen. This brings us back again to that, that proof text, Matthew 5.18. Let's, let's speak just a little bit to a bit of an exposition about Matthew 5.18. Again, it states, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A classic proof text for the meticulous preservation of the very words of Scripture. You may well know that some of our friends who take a different position from us will say, oh, you've misunderstood this. This is just about God's preservation of the general content of Scripture, not the, the, the exact words. We have the basic content. So let's think about that. Is which, which interpretation is correct? Is, were, were the framers of the confession mistaken? Did they get the, wrong, the right doctrine from the wrong text, which some, some moderns sometimes say? Let's think about this. Well, of course, this statement from our Lord comes during his teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 1, we read that Christ went up into a mountain and that when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And then in verse 2 of Matthew 5, it says he opened his mouth and he taught them. After this, we have the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. He teaches about his disciples as salt and light in verses 13 through 16. And then he explains in this teaching, which begins in verse 17 and continues on down, about how his teaching is related to previous inscripturated revelation from the Old Testament or the law and the prophets. And so in verse 17 of Matthew 5, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You may well know that the ancient Jews thought of the Old Testament in three parts. Uh, the, there was, the first of all, the Torah, the law, and then there was the Nevi'im, the, the prophets, and then there were the Ketuvim, the writings. And so by referring to any one or to two of them, Christ was referring to all the scriptures. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament, I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And now uh, one thing we know for certain, however, is that Christ in, in saying this was stressing the continuity of his teaching with the Old Testament. Many interpreters, in fact, believe that Matthew was especially written for a Jewish audience and that the Holy Spirit directed Matthew to give emphasis to record those teachings of our Lord 
which would remind his audience that Christ had affirmed the teachings of the Old Testament. We see this in the many so-called fulfillment citations that we find in Matthew's gospel, especially in the first two chapters uh, where it describes the birth of Christ, for example, as all this happened to fulfill what was spoken in Isaiah the prophet, etc. And then he proceeds uh, after verse 17, talking about he did not come to do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. We get this statement where he emphasizes till heaven and earth pass, that is until the end of the age, one jot, and it's the Greek word iota, or one tittle, and it's a term that is almost universally agreed to as referring to the least stroke of a pen that would make something like the Hebrew letter yod, which is written in a very small hand with just a stroke, that, that one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, the Torah, but that's a stand-in word for, for all the Old Testament, till all be fulfilled. As R.T. France points out in his Matthew commentary, perhaps the greatest interpretive problem with these verses is that one might take it to mean that Christ was declaring not just the continuity of his teaching with the Old Testament, but the uniform continuation of those teachings, meaning Christians would continue to practice things like circumcision, keeping the dietary laws, observing festivals like Passover. And you know that this was indeed a huge issue in early Christianity. This was, this was the impetus for the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, arguments about circumcision. Read the book of Galatians. This was a huge contested issue. We know, in fact, that Christ was not teaching simply the, that all of the doctrines from the Old Testament were going to be continued to be upheld in the New Covenant. We'll come to that in a moment. We can see throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, that Christ begins to talk about the ways in which he upholds the law, but also the ways in which he calls for a heightened uh, obedience to the law. For example, in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, he follows a pattern that's repeated in Matthew 5. Ye have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And there he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, the sixth commandment. But then he says, you shall not get unjustly angry with someone. In Matthew 7, 12, Christ offers the teaching known as the golden rule, concluding, for this is the law and the prophets. Later in Matthew 22, he offers the great commandments that we're to love God. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Leviticus 19, 18, concluding in Matthew twenty two forty, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Christ was not calling for doing away with the law, but if anything, a higher spiritual fulfillment of the law. That said, however, this did not mean continuing affirmation of all the Old Testament laws under the New Covenant. And this is also taught in our Reformed Confessions. If you look at chapter 19 of the Confession, for example, it describes the classic threefold view, Reformed threefold view of the law. First, there is the moral law, epitomized in the Ten Commandments, which continues, as the Confession says, a perfect rule of righteousness. Second, there is the ceremonial law, which is abrogated and taken away. Third, there is the civil law, which, as the Baptist Confession says, is expired 
its general equity only being of moral use. I make this point to say that the Reformed and Protestant men apparently came to the conclusion that Matthew 5.18 and its references to not one jot or tittle passing from the law could not have been referring generally to all the teaching of the law or to every minutia of every commandment within it, given that some aspects of that law would indeed either be abrogated or would expire. Therefore, its most natural application was to the meticulous preservation of the words or the formal content of Scripture. There's no doubt some significance in the fact that Christ used here a textual metaphor based on the preservation of the smallest pen stroke. And it's also, I think, significant that he used one reference to a Greek letter, the Iota, and he used one reference to a Hebrew letter, probably the dash of the Yod, indicating the preservation of the text of both the New and Old Testaments. This fits with the Reformed concept that would be developed in Protestant Orthodoxy of what was called the Autoritas Divina Duplex, or the double divine authority of the original words in Hebrew and Greek Scripture. That is, they articulate the fact that Scripture is infallible or pure in its material content in the original Hebrew and Greek, and also in its formal content, that is, in its very words, in its writing. And so it is infallible, quoad race, with respect to content, and quoad verborum, with respect to its words. Matthew 5.18 was thus, for the Reformed, a key proof text for the providential preservation of Scripture as authentical. It should be noted that we have this statement by Christ on the preservation of the Old Testament at the start of Matthew's Gospel. And if you're familiar with Matthew's Gospel, you know that toward the end of the Gospel, in Matthew 24.35, he makes a corresponding statement. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Those two teachings, Matthew 5.18, Matthew 24.35, these serve as frames, bookends, and inclusio, the literary scholars will tell us. The first passage, Matthew 5.18, says that not one word from the Old Testament will be dropped. And then at the end, Christ says his own words, the words recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. I think we can extrapolate from that to say the words in all the Gospels and also the teaching of the apostles, the entire New Testament. And so those two statements, Matthew 5.18, Matthew 24.35, affirm God's preservation of all the scriptures for God's people. Well, that was what we could call what I just articulated, we would call it the old perspective on Matthew 5.18. That's the old perspective on Matthew 5.18. Let me just give you, offer you a couple of quotations from some of the old men to show that this is what they believed. Let's start with John Calvin. In his commentary on Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, he said this, There is nothing in the law that is unimportant, nothing that was put there at random, so it is impossible that a single letter shall perish. That's old view 
of Matthew 5.18. Let's look at John Owen. John Owen, Prince of the Puritans, wrote a little essay called The Reason of Faith in Volume 4 of his Collected Works. And in it, he talks about the providential preservation of Scripture. And of course, what does he do? Quote in full Matthew 5.18. And then he says, he explains, exposits. He writes, This verse doth invincibly prove the divine approbation or approval of this book. Adding, God's perpetual care over the scripture for so many ages that not a letter of it should be utterly lost. Nothing that hath the least tendency toward its end should perish is evidence of his sufficient regard unto it. He continued Dissentious point by saying this, For my part, I cannot but judge that he that seeth not an hand of divine providence stretched out in the preservation of this book and all that is in it is words and its syllables, not just content, it's words and its syllables for thousands of years through all the overthrows and delusions of calamities that have befallen the world doth not believe that there is any such thing as divine providence at all. You don't believe God has preserved his word. You don't believe in providence. I just skimmed through a huge tome written recently by a well-known um, new Calvinistic author. I think it's about 700, 800 pages published by a well-known evangelical publisher on providence. And there is not one section in it about the divine preservation of scripture. This was the view of Francis Turretin. He held the old view on Matthew 5.18. In his Elinctic Theology, Volume 1, he deals with a series of questions about Scripture. The fifth question is, do real contradictions occur in Scripture? This is how he commences his discussion. He commences with a series of statements about Scripture. He says, the Scriptures are inspired, theonoustos, quoting 2 Timothy 3.16. The Word of God cannot lie, Psalm 19, verses 8 and 9, Hebrews 6.18. The word of God cannot pass away and be destroyed. Matthew 5, 18. Shall endure, 1 Peter 1, 25. And is itself truth, John 17, 17. For how could things be predicated of it if it contained dangerous contradictions? And if God suffered either the sacred writers to err or slip in memory, or incurable blemishes creep into it. He then adds, this is Turretin, nor can we readily believe that God, who dictated and inspired each and every word, he didn't, he didn't get the memo on, uh, you, no, 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 mechanical dictation, no, 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 just organic. But he says, God dictated and inspired each and every word. We cannot believe he would do that. This God who would do that would not take care of their entire preservation. If men use the utmost care diligently to preserve their words in order that may, it may not be corrupted, how much more must we suppose God would take care of his word, which he intended as a testament and seal of his covenant with us so that it might not be corrupted? Given Calvin as a witness for the old view, Owen, Turretin, let's add the Dutch scholar Petrus van Maastricht 
and his theoretical practical theology just was just translated to English from Latin in 2018. And so it's a treasure trove of quotations about the theology of scripture. In one discussion, he asks, are the Hebrew and Greek sources corrupted? This is his answer. Are they corrupted? He says, we deny this for the following reasons. One, it seems contrary to the providence of God. When he watches over everything for us, even down to the very hairs on our head, would he not have watched over the ground of our faith and salvation? Two, this is contrary to the testimony of Scripture. And what proof text does he give? Matthew 5.18, alongside of Luke 16.29. Three, the authority of Scripture would, by this very reason, fall to the ground, since it rests upon the sources Neither the Hebrew Old Testament nor the Greek New Testament is corrupted. That's von Maastricht. Well, sadly, we've got to talk about the new perspective. This was the old perspective. But what is the new perspective? We only begin to hear the new perspective when we reach the post-enlightenment modern era. It begins by challenging the special timing of the preservation of the sacred text at the time of the Protestant Reformation. On one hand, some scholars anachronistically claim that the pre-critical men of the Reformation and post-Reformation were simply practicing the same basic methods of reasoned eclecticism. We're just doing what they did. And now we have this wealth of information that they didn't have access to, except you can read through the commentaries and see that they were aware of basically all the major textual issues that are being discussed today. On the other hand, some have suggested that the printing revolution, part of that perfect storm, the printing revolution, including the printing of the Bible during the Reformation era, was actually, they tell us, actually wasn't a boon for the church. Actually, it was a bit of a bust. According to this view, the advent of printing introduced textual fundamentalism. This is the perspective taken by Craig A. Evans, of Houston Baptist University in his essay published in 2020 in a book called Jesus and the Manuscripts. The title of the essay is Jesus in Print, Erasmus and the Beginnings of Textual Fundamentalism. Evans suggests that Erasmus laid a foundation on which an uncritical understanding of the biblical text could find apparent support. He adds, quote, the idea of a text in which there was no corruption created the context, if not the incentive, for the development of a new form of fundamentalism, which focused on the ipsissima verba autographorum, the very words of the originals. And eventually, with respect to the teaching of Jesus himself, the ipsissima verba Jesu, the very words of Jesus. After all, if we are now in possession of the autographic text, he continues, we are now in possession of the exact words of Jesus, end quote. Wouldn't that be horrible <laughs> if we thought in our Bibles we had the, the exact words of the authors and we thought when we read in the gospel we were actually hearing the Ipsissima Verbum Yesu. What a tragedy that would be. And this is an evangelical scholar telling us that we, if, we, if, we, if we insist on suggesting that God has preserved his word, we've become textual fundamentalists. He would, of course, reject any sense of Matthew 5.18 as affirming the meticulous preservation of Scripture, the so-called old view of Matthew 5.18. 
But as we've already noted, this perspective is problematic on several levels. The standard reform view is that all the Old Testament doctrines and instructions have not been maintained. The ceremonial law has been abrogated. The civil law has expired. Matthew 5.18 is not talking about the preservation of simply all the concepts. It must be speaking about something else. And that something else is the preservation of all the words of Scripture. Every jot and tittle. That that is what has been maintained by the Spirit of God. Let me share a little bit about how the fruit, we could call what we could call the fruit of this new perspective on Matthew 5.18, how it has trickled down and how it's being expressed and understood uh, today by people who are embracing modern texts and modern translations. In the end, it produces a modern text that is merely an approximation of the original and not the original itself. For over the last hundred years, the best that modern scholars can say is that we almost, sort of, have a very close approximation of perhaps what the Bible might be. And this is presented to us as a great triumph a great achievement of the science of modern textual criticism, a great theological leap forward. Here's a brief survey of some typical statements that you might read about. Let's begin with Neil R. Lightfoot's book, How We Got the Bible, first published in 1963, reading from the third edition of it, 2003. He exudes that the tools of modern textual criticism with these tools in hand, quote, it is possible to come so near to the original autographs that we can all but grasp them in our hands. Well, is that good? We can all but, we, we can't actually grasp them, but we can only all but grasp them. They are tantalizingly close. But we still can't grasp them. Might remind you of the old Frankie Valley song, so close, so close, and yet so far away. Husbands here in this room, if your bride were brought to you on your wedding day and you were told you can get tantalizingly close to her, you can almost grasp her, almost. Would, that, would you find that to be satisfying? Let's move on to Paul D. Wegner's book, Textual Criticism of the Bible, printed by University Press in 2006. He wrote that on page 39. While questions as to the original text surface in some places, a substantial amount of the New Testament text remains unquestioned and most likely represents the original autographs or very close to it. Is that assuring to anyone? On page 301, he writes, careful examination of these manuscripts have served to strengthen our assurance that our, our modern Greek and Hebrew critical texts are very close to the original autographs, even though we do not have those autographs. Of course, he adds this disclaimer on page 254. It is crucial to remind people that most variants are insignificant and that no doctrine hinges on a variant text. We can look at Jeffrey D. Johnson's book, Behind the Bible, published by Solid Ground Christian Books in 2012. He wrote there, 
on page 19. Although it is highly doubtful that we will ever know for certain that we possess in entirety, line by line, word for word, letter for letter, dot for dot, the exact text of the original writings of the prophets and apostles, it is believed by the majority of textual scholars that we can come very, very close. Is that reassuring to you? Of course, uh, he also adds uh, on page 20, over 98% of the manuscripts agree with one another. And of course, he says, they do not alter any of the differences, do not alter any truth or doctrine. More recently, hot off the presses, we can examine Paul Abidon, Abidon Shaw's book, Can We Recover the Original Text of the New Testament, published this year, 2023, in which he writes, page 10, overall, approximately 94% of the text is totally reliable. It's only the remaining 5 to 6% that's in question. He goes on to say, given the multitude of the manuscripts and relative insignificance of the remaining variants, in most instances, there is no problem in retrieving the original text. And of course, he adds the uh, perfunctory statement, no doctrine is in jeopardy. Most errors were early, but generally explainable. Very few would be doctrinally significant. What does that imply? Some are doctrinally significant. It's not much of an assurance if you tell me that only very few are. Which ones? Where? How do I discern it? How do I know? It's also curious to notice how often the experts change their minds. In 2017, the Tyndall House Greek New Testament was published by Cambridge and Crossway, and the editor, Dirk Yonkin, included the traditional text of John 1.18. Uses the, the phrase monogenes huios, the only begotten son. And I thought that was wonderful. But then this year, he published an article in which he suggested that he had made a mistake, and that actually the modern critical text version would probably be best. And so I expect that in future editions, it'll probably read monogenes theos, the only God. Peter Gurry, just a few years ago, affirmed that Mark, that Mark 16, 9 through 20 was original and authentic. But then he reversed course and announced that he was mistaken, and it's not original. But he suggested in his magnanimity that it can still appear in Bibles as long as there are notes to explain that it's not really biblical. <laughs> to paraphrase former presidential candidate John Kerry, it seems Gurry voted for Mark 16, 9 through 20 before he voted against it. Just recently, Edgar Abojo, a member of the committee that's revising the critical text, gave a lecture in Dallas, Texas. They did a podcast on this, and Dane alluded to, to the information in that, announced that next year there's going to be the Nestle 29th edition. The year after that, the United Bible Society 6th edition. And, of course, they're applying over time uh, a method called the Coherence-Based Genealogical Method applied to a, a, a scholarly revision of the text called the Editio Critica Maior, and, and the next editions that are upcoming is going to be applied to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Book of Acts, and Revelation, and he announced there are going to be 200 changes that are going to be made in those books 
in these new scholarly editions of the Greek New Testament, and there's more still to come because they've, they've got many more books that haven't yet been had the CB, CBGM applied to it. This perpetual state of uncertainty about the text of the Bible recalls the observation of Southern philosopher Richard A. Weaver when he wrote, the theory of empiricism is plausible because it assumes that accuracy about small matters prepares the way for valid judgments about larger ones. What happens, however, is that judgments are never made. Better still might be consideration of Paul's description of his opponents in 2 Timothy 3.7, who were ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Another gem from Weaver. For modern man, there is no providence because it would simply imply a wisdom superior to his and a relationship of means to ends he cannot find out. After examining the assured results of modern textual criticism and discovering that they have the essential consistency of a bowl of jello, one might be tempted to ask the same question I recently saw posed by someone on Twitter slash X. He wrote, what if the critical text is just a liberal delusion? Do we have an authentical text that has been preserved by God? Or do we only have a close approximation of it? Maybe, sort of. If you're a confessional Reformed Christian, which viewpoint on the authenticity of Scripture would you say best fits the doctrine contained in Westminster Confession of Faith 1.8? Would you say it's the old view or the new view? If you're a Bible-believing Christian of any stripe, whose interpretation of Matthew 5.18 is more accurate and compelling. Somehow in this upside-down world we are living in, to side with the bibliology of Calvin, Owen, Turretin, and Van Maastricht means you are a reactionary fundamentalist, a textual fundamentalist, a KJV-onlyist, and a threat to orthodoxy. TR-onlyism must be condemned. But when it comes to the CBGM and 200 changes to your Bible... Nothing to see here. It's time, indeed, for us to reclaim our confessional heritage, to retrieve Reformed bibliology. Some of you know that I served as a short-term missionary in Hungary. I was talking to somebody about this recently. I taught for two years at the Hungarian Baptist Seminary uh, right after the fall of communism. And uh, I've gone back several times over the years. A couple years ago, I was back, uh, taking a group of people there on a ministry trip, and we went to the, the, the classic uh, tourist point in Budapest is called the Fisherman's Bastion, beautiful area overlooking the Danube. Every tourist goes there. And there's a beautiful uh, church there, Roman Catholic church, beautiful in, in style. Um, and it's called the St. Matthias Templum or the, the St. Matthias Church. And we went on a tour of it, walked through it. And I, uh, although I'd been to that area several times, I'd never been to this part. I saw that they had a reliquary. And I paid a couple extra for it, which wasn't much, to just walk through and see uh, some of the items that were in there. And so, you know, there was a lock of hair from this saint. And there was, a, I don't think there were any, I can't remember if there were any pieces of the cross, you know. I think Luther said if we got all the pieces of the cross across Europe, we could build a ship with them. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, one of the things that stood out, they, they, they had the tooth, supposedly, of St. Francis. And uh, I was walking through there, and uh, during the day I'd been talking with friends. Uh, we, were, we were there about, about the preaching of the gospel in Hungary and so forth. 
And I have to tell you, as I walked through that reliquary, I felt an overwhelming sense of awe and wonder. Not for those dead relics. <laughs> Not one iota <laughs> or tittle for those, for those dead relics. But I felt an overwhelming sense of awe and appreciation for the memory of those early men who came into Europe, the men of the Reformation, who brought the gospel into places like Germany and Hungary and the British Isles and to every dark corner of Europe. They came into places that were filled with superstition, with ignorance, with spiritual blindness, and they brought with them only their Bibles. They brought their Bibles. They brought the Word of God written, inspired, kept pure in all ages, every jot and tittle of it. How were they able to have the fortitude that it takes to bring the gospel to a God-forsaken culture? They could do so because they had confidence that they were holding in their hands the authentical Word of God. How did they know it was the authentical word of God? Because they heard in it the voice of their shepherd. They could point men and women and children to authentic faith in Christ because they had the authentical words of this book. And our task, it appears, is becoming in these days increasingly similar to theirs. May we, in this generation, take up that old, authentical text and the faithful translations made from it, that anvil that has broken many a hammer, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and wield it to God's glory and man's good. Amen?